All right, everybody. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATAS. You're all Michael Ironside all the time. Speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. I am back with part two of our discussion about Starship Troopers, the 1959 novel by Robert Heinlein. This episode, as the previous episode was, is uh, brought to you thanks to a very generous commission by one of our Patreon supporters. I want to say thank you so much for that. And of course, Brandon Buddha is back with me here. Brandon is my co-host on Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast, and also the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, which is uh, going to be relevant today. Uh, so Brandon, this is the episode that I have been, <laughs> have been really looking forward to. <laughs> yeah, we'll try to keep it under six hours if we can. <laughs> we're we're going to do do our best to do that uh yeah this this is a lot of fun i mean just the number of ideas in this book that uh i don't know are easy on some levels to disagree with but also very easy to agree with uh is is one of the great challenges of reading this novel i mean it leads to its enjoyment for sure uh but we're going to be looking at some of heinlein's arguments here and see if they actually stand up to any sort of scrutiny uh but certainly on a surface level unless you have an immediate sort of gut reaction against a lot of his ideas i think it's it's fairly easy to think hey he's designed a pretty good society and that is really the question that we're going to be tackling today, right? So last time we really looked at this book as military science fiction, but this time we're going to look at it as political science fiction, which, you know, for my money, that really is the principal tag that I would hang on this book. I really think this is at its core, a political science fiction book. Uh, but I also want to be clear before we get going about just sort of some of the, the operating procedures that we're going to have here. And the principal one is that we're only using this text. We're not going to talk about any of the things that I'm has to say on any of these topics of political philosophy or philosophy more broadly in some of his other books, right? So we know that, hey, the moon is a harsh mistress, has a society on the moon writing a new constitution. That might be informative about Heinlein's political philosophy, but we're not going to bring that in here. Stranger in a strange land, same thing, Job, so uh, and so on and so on. We're only going to use this text. We're just going to talk about what is in this text. The outline here of what we're going to do is start with the the purpose of government, right? We're going to try and understand what does Heinlein, or at least Heinlein as the author of Starship Troopers, think government is for. We're going to talk about what he thinks citizenship is and how that operates in this fictional world that he's invented here. We'll talk about democracy and liberalism, pacifism and militarism. We're going to cover moral philosophy, criminal justice, economics, basically all of the stuff that is in this book, all of the stuff that this book is really about. But I'm going to get us started before we get into any of those topics there. I'm just going to get us started with a brief political history of this speculative world, right? Because I think the genesis of this type of utopia that, that Heinlein has invented here is going to be informative. In fact, I know it is going to be informative for how we are looking at the way that Heinlein is also envisioning future economics, future criminal justice, moral philosophy, and so on. So this book is very clearly set after the 20th century, but it's not, you know, like millennia after. So probably it is best, I think, to think of this world as being like contemporary with, you know, I don't know, you know, Captain Kirk or Captain Picard, something like that, right? To think of this as kind of an alternative Star Trek, a sort of near future Earth. 
There is a single human government now, uh, though on Earth this is federated, meaning that the the top level government is officially at least a federation of really a hundred or more independent states, uh, and at least some of them with a lot of autonomy. But we also know that this really does, the system really does look a lot more like the United States of the 1950s than the 1850s. There are clearly things like federal mandates that apply to education and the, the criminal justice system. System and, and so on. And also, very important, humans have settled other places in the solar system, also other planets beyond. And those humans all also seem to be in this same system of, of government. They, they, they very definitely are. There are also other intelligent species in the galaxy. We, as humans, under a single government, have relationships with them, but also are at war with one of them and its allies, right? The arachnids, the bugs. But the real question is, right, what happened to our civilization? What is the the history of our future here that is the past for this utopia that Heinlein is presenting here? Uh, and let's do the geopolitics uh, first. So Heinlein wrote this book in the late 1950s, and he predicts that the Cold War that's been going on really more or less since the end of the Second World War, so, you know, about 15 years, a decade or so at the time that Heinlein was writing this book, uh, Heinlein predicts that that Cold War is not really going to be a thing, and that uh, by the end of the century, the alliance that defeated Germany, Italy, and Japan in the Second World War, that is going to be a thing again. And he actually never, ever refers to the Soviet Union in this book. It is only Russia. These three powers, right, Russia, Britain, the U.S., they are going to end up fighting a war against the Chinese hegemony. And this war is essentially a third world war. It was totally devastating. But the real collapse of our world or, you know, the world that there was in the 1950s, that came because of flaws in the Western system of government, which is to say liberalism and universal democracy, right? There were real flaws inherent in that way of life. And Heinlein predicts that violent crime and drug addiction are going to make life unbearable in the United States. He even has his characters refer to the late 20th century as the terror uh, this was also the situation in the UK and Russia. I mean, presumably, right? Like the entire liberal world or you know, I don't know what we really just call like the West, you know, like NATO uh, and Japan and South Korea, Taiwan and so on. But ultimately, the existing democratic governments in these places failed to suppress the terror. And so local citizens began to take matters into their own hands. And most of these people were former soldiers. They were veterans of this Third World War. And pretty soon, councils of military veterans were running local governments all over the world. And then we fast forward to the present of this story, and really all levels of government are run by military veterans. Only military veterans are able to vote or able to hold office. And that seems to be true at every level of government in this uh, this imaginary future here. And those groups of military veterans were then able to unite the planet into this single government and essentially usher in an era of peace. And so, yeah, that, that's what we know about the world that Heinlein has in, invented here. Uh, I think I've hit all the high points, but Brandon, is there anything that we should add to this before we start to really break down and interrogate the political philosophy behind Heinlein's vision? One of the things that Heinlein critiques explicitly here is uh, one of the moves of the 1950s that uh, directs education 
a public education in particular towards what we call STEM now, science, technology, engineering, and math. Uh, and in Heinlein's mind here, that, that pretty much fails. He refers to something as the revolt of the scientists. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I can sympathize with Heinlein's concerns here in this case, that setting up a scientific utopia is not a good idea. Uh, but we'll have lots to disagree with, with his uh, veteran-run <laughs> utopia as well. <laughs> Utopias are pretty bad ideas, I think, in general. They're all kind of secretly controlling and uh, tyrannical on some level. But yeah, that, I, that's the one thing I wanted to point out, is that Heinlein is not just critiquing kind of the rise of third world powers and things like that, and uh, the role that veterans play as those who are maybe ideologically driven in some way that Heinlein never really investigates to uh, protect the group over the individual, things like that. Uh, he's also gone after in his history of the future, um, the uh, explicit focus on the STEM subjects as what an educated person is or what they should aspire to. Right. And and as someone who, at least before, you know, COVID destroyed everything and took my job from me, has, has been a humanities <laughs> teacher at the university level, uh, you know, I don't maybe have a lot of gripes with that. And in fact, I think that a lot of my real love for this book is that, although I've just characterized it as being largely political science fiction, this really is a book about being in, in a history class, <laughs> right? And I think you're going to walk us through what that is. So in our last episode, I mentioned how this novel is a kind of stealth buildings roman. That is to say, it is a novel about the formation of the main character, how Johnny Rico becomes the good king, the good father, essentially. And that, to me, is an explicit motif in the novel. I'm happy to argue with people if they disagree with me. But I don't <laughs> think it's hard to argue that this is a, a buildings roman. And the way that Heinlein shows us how Johnny Rico is formed is through primarily Rico sitting in these history and moral philosophy classes as flashbacks, uh, both in high school and in OCS. So there are a few things we should say about these classes before we dig into the things that they teach. The first is that they are taught by citizens, which is to say veterans. And the ones we see represented in the book, the instructors are all officers. Um, in Rico's OCS class, it's explicitly stated that history and moral philosophy is an exact science. Passing history and moral philosophy is crucial to one's success in the military, especially if you want to become an officer. But in high school, the instructors don't really expect that their class will have much of an impact because it seems that most people have already made up their minds about what track they're going to be on, whether they're going to be a citizen or a civilian. But it is a required class, even though most of the students treat it like it's like a, a home ec elective or something like that, <laughs> uh, which I took my senior year and was one of my favorite classes because we made jelly rolls and uh, just hung out. So, uh, yeah, but th th that's kind of the attitude that, that a lot of students have. Maybe it's a stimulating on some level, but they're not going to do anything with it. They're going to understand how their society was formed, why it's important to keep it that way. But they're already living with the fruits of the society itself. I mentioned that passing history and moral philosophy is really important to becoming an officer. And that's because you can only become an officer if your history and moral philosophy instructor gives you a passing grade. 
So Heinlein really has in mind here that history and moral philosophy is this kind of like double super secret class that keeps society running. This is the educational system, the core education that is enforced by the government, that anybody who wants to be a leader, an officer in this military, and then maybe go on to have a career in civil service has to be really well liked by their history and moral philosophy instructor. So, and you mentioned one of the instructors I, by, by name here is, is Major Reed, who's the instructor of this course in OCS. And then the other instructor, the high school instructor, is uh, is Colonel Dubois. Though uh, what's one of the things that's really important about Dubois is that uh, Johnny Rico doesn't realize that he was a colonel or, or appreciate what that meant, right, until he discovers this fact in, in basic training. It also turns out that his basic training instructor, Zim, who, you know, becomes this surrogate father for him. We talked a lot about that in the the, the first episode, uh, also knows Dubois. And so there become all these multiple layers, actually, of like surrogate fathers or like surrogate family here for Rico that all really radiate out from Dubois and from this one formative class in high school, this this history and moral philosophy class that he has. And we get really these these like flashback scenes cutting back and forth, uh, sometimes to the high school class, sometimes to the OCS class. We're going to try to synthesize both of those. We're not going to go through these sort of in, a, in the kind of narrative order. We've broken them down by topic. And we're going to start just by examining, and we're going to start with the broad and, and then try to move into the specific. And so if we're talking about political philosophy, and we are, one of the first things that we really need to figure out is well, what does a particular thinker believe is even the purpose of government to to begin with? Assuming that this person actually is not an anarchist and believes in government, and a Heinlein is not an anarchist and does believe in government, at least in this book. But let's start our own investigation here into the political philosophy I think, inherent in this fictional world here at this broadest level. We're going to start with the purpose of government. And and Heinlein has Major Reed give a, a speech to, to Rico and, and a couple others of his, of his colleagues here that I think is really informative. It can tell us quite a bit about what matters uh, to Heinlein, uh, at least in this book. So I'm going to read that and then we'll we'll break it down. Uh, but we're also going to talk about what's not on the list of things that government is doing, which is going to be at least as informative as what is. It might actually be more informative. Uh, we'll see. So here's what Major Reed says. Our system works quite well. Many complain, but none rebel. Personal freedom for all is the greatest in history. Laws are few. Taxes are low. Living standards are as high as productivity permits. Crime is at its lowest ebb. So yeah, let's go through what's on this list. We'll just take this in order. So first up, first, right, first thing that Heinlein says here about what government does or the, or the characteristic of this government is that personal freedom for all is the greatest in history. And for a book that bills itself, or at least the marketing people anyway, bill the book as being this like military adventure, right? And everyone that we meet in this book is a is some kind of military person, and they are the heroes of this system. It is interesting that the that not well one that not on this list actually at all is like people are safe from foreign invasion and that defense is strong. It's not on this list at all, but it's also not number one, right? It's this is actually the number one thing on this list is about individuals having freedom. Uh, word freedom here, totally undefined. Um, how do we measure it's the greatest? Unclear, right? But there's a lot, I think, <laughs> embedded in in this list, in, in the fact that this is the first item on this list. What he means by freedom here is deeply unclear, especially as what freedom appears to mean is 
the accepting the limitations of the world you live in, especially as they're experienced by Johnny Rico, and also accepting the responsibility that you need to take to your fellow man, neighbor, family, whatever. So freedom here is about responsibility. It's about uh, duty. It's about limitations. It's also about understanding that the government is going to step in very efficiently and very effectively whenever people cross these lines. Corporal punishment is a big feature of this world as well. We'll talk about the criminal justice system in a little bit. So yeah, that freedom is at its highest is to say that people feel safe and secure in the system and are on some level free to pursue Happiness, I suppose. Uh, one of their rights. We'll talk about that too. I'm just going to say we're going to talk <laughs> about everything. Um, they're free to pursue their own well-being, right? That's not withheld from them, and I think that that must be what Heinlein what Heinlein has in mind here, given the emphasis on all of the other things that he really is focused on in both this speech by Major Reed and other ones given by Colonel Dubois. Right. So I think the fact that that personal freedom is listed here as the first thing and, and, and Reed does not spell out or it doesn't say that that ensuring personal freedom is the primary objective, the primary purpose of government. But that is what is being implied here. Right. And so that in itself, I mean, that's actually really kind of a gauntlet being thrown down when we're thinking about what is the purpose of of government. And the idea here, right, I think, you know, you're, you're right to say that it's unclear what he actually means by freedom. But I think that the the next items on the list are actually pretty instructive here. Right. Laws are few and taxes are low. So if the government's principal job is to ensure that individuals have as much freedom as possible, but yet at the same time, there are very few laws, who is it that other people are requiring freedom from? Uh, and what do we mean by freedom? And I think it is pretty clear throughout the book that what Heinlein has in mind by freedom, which is not a word that actually appears very often in the text. In fact, this might be the only place where it shows up. But that what he means is that individuals are not subject to the deliberate interference from other people, right? That people are free to make individual choices within the bounds of as few rules as possible. And so what he really means here is freedom from government intrusion, and I think that is why laws are few is the next thing on this list. And that's a fairly classic liberal notion of freedom there. It is interesting to me that Heinlein says that laws are few, right? So that like the government doesn't step in necessarily with every issue or people aren't burdened by, uh, you know, inconceivable books of law, which, you know, in our society, we don't even really require our police officers to know very well. Those laws may be few in the society. Punishments, rules, and social norms around moral behavior are anything other, anything other than few. Uh, you can get corporally punished in school. This, I don't know, civic institution has the right to publicly flog people. The idea that there are few laws and that that is a really important part of how this system works and that it is right after personal freedom for all is the greatest in history really suggests a, a type of laissez-faire, a type of let-it-be approach to government on the part of Heinlein here, where he really is thinking about, and I think taxes are logos along with this too, right? That that 
that government is taking as much of a hands-off approach as possible. I think there are some indications in the text, though, that that is not actually true. I mean, you've, you've already brought up that there's a lot of flogging in this in this book. So there's some questions there immediately. One of the questions that I've got really right away is, how is it possible that taxes are low, given that this is a society that has, you know, and it's an interstellar society with all these like massive spaceships and planet busting weapons, right? That this is very clearly a militaristic state. And just, you know, you can take kind of, I don't know, the last 20 years, let's just say, look at the United States tax budget and half or or more, depending on how you calculate what is the expenditure of tax revenue versus what is the expenditure of uh, revenue for entitlements that's appropriated like a tax, but not actually as a tax, right? A sort of te- very technical difference there. But military spending, it's like half of what our tax money goes to. And from a certain point of view, most people in the United States only pay their taxes for the military. All the other stuff that we think of, of taxes going for like I don't know, like the National Endowment for the Humanities and so on, are not things that most middle class people are paying for, right? That we're really just contributing to the military budget here. So I'm a little concerned, I'm a little confused maybe about how it is that Major Reed can claim that taxes are low here. I would actually like to see the books. I'd love to see the books in this society because they also seem to be kind of uber capitalist in an ideal sense of capitalism, not not kind of what capitalism has become. Maybe they have a very progressive tax rate uh, that taxes the wealthy. <laughs> and maybe this world is one without billionaires or trillionaires. <laughs> and so maybe there's a cap. Maybe there's a cap on how much you can personally earned, though that would seem to go against everything Heinlein believes. Uh, I I expect that for the majority of people, taxes are low because of the abundance of wealth created in this ideal system means that uh, surplus wealth has been recirculated in the economy in in some way. Well, right. That's exactly what the next thing on the list, the next item on the list says. Living standards are as high as productivity permits. I want to break that down in a number of ways. But one of the things that's very clear here right, we have, is the emphasis on productivity, which is to say that Heinlein is very clearly envisioning here a, a an economic approach by government, uh, so a philosophy here uh, that emphasizes what we call supply side economics, what uh, President Bush the Elder called voodoo economics when he was running against uh, Ronald Reagan for the the nomination uh, in 1980, but then also gets called trickle down economics by uh, both by people who are in favor and who are not in favor of this, people who promote and oppose this idea. But it is the idea that. The government should not be the government should be doing its best to get out of the way of business. So this is also, I think, going back to laws are few, right? I think we, if we substitute the word regulation for laws there, right, that businesses shouldn't have to obey, have any kind of restrictions on their on their activities put on them for things like environmental stewardship or work safety and that sort of thing. Companies should be able to just do what they want to do and people can choose to work for them or choose to buy their products as they wish. And if companies are doing things that uh, are people are opposed to, then people will not work for them. People will not buy their products and they'll go out of business. But we don't need laws to do that. The marketplace will uh, take care of that, will enforce that on its on its own. And we want low taxes. We especially want low business taxes so that people are encouraged to invest 
We want low inheritance taxes so that people are so that people are motivated to accrue wealth that they can pass on generationally. We know that that is happening here uh, in the society. There is no cap on income here, Brandon. This is right. Johnny Rico is an extraordinarily wealthy person from an extraordinarily wealthy family. We'll talk more about that later, right? But this is very much a supply side or trickle down economics model here that Heinlein is evoking, really, and just you know just by by grouping up these these factors here. And theoretically, you can imagine this working in Heinlein society because it's a one system of government, world government. So you're not dealing with tariffs, uh, trade issues like trade wars. You're not dealing with any of that stuff. Everybody's cooperating perfectly. So I guess in a world where everybody cooperates perfectly and people are paid uh, a wage that reflects the value of both their labor, but also of the good that is being created, the commodity, that you can imagine trickle-down economics working. Uh, But everything has to be ideal. You can also imagine the way that technology has created uh, efficiencies in the marketplace. So like, if you have space travel, faster than light travel, you can imagine how quickly you can get a resource, say, from uh, China to Pennsylvania, right? The shipping, the trucking costs, all these additional costs, the trade tariffs, the uh, differences in values that different economies and societies have on goods, all of that is kind of erased. So all that's left is the smooth efficiency of the business machine. And Heinlein, I guess, is imagining as many proponents of trickle down (laughs) economics imagine that that is actually what the world is moving towards, where it seems as though on on the face of it that 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 really is not the direction that our world is moving in. Also, if you can get goods from Mars, from Pluto, really, you're talking about a world, uh, a system where commodities are part of literal infinite scalability and infinite resources, which is the dream of capitalism as well. So all of this is a kind of highly idealized mode of thinking that shows why capitalism is really the best possible economic system. Yeah, let's break down what Heinlein even means here by living standards or, or what we might call standard of living or quality of life. What are the the elements of a person's life that you think Heinlein actually has in, in mind here when he says that they are high? Yeah, I've really thought about this with regards to this novel because Heinlein goes on a rant, well... I shouldn't say Heinlein. Dubois goes on a rant against uh, the unalienable rights, uh, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, right? A pursuit of happiness here is a phrase that we use, and, and we've really distorted our understanding of the word happiness now compared to like what the goal of that phrase was when it was used coming out of classical and enlightenment era thinking about happiness, we should really be thinking about flourishing and what people need to flourish is actually very little. They need security, like to know that they're not going to be interrupted by crime, (laughs) like pursuing something that they want to pursue. Um, So they need security. They need, you know, the human necessities, shelter, nutrition, uh, food, community, things like that, clothing. Um, And they need to have access to the things that allow them to flourish 
I'll say spiritually here as well, which are the things that enrich or edify their sense of well-being, um, that relieve the pressures of living in uh, society. So for some people, it's the pursuit of making, and that could be art, it could be manufacturing, it, uh, it could be crafts, craftsmanship, uh, something we'd call like hobbies today, but really like leisure activities. If they're not living in a world of total work, uh, as we seem to be, then those leisure activities need to be accessible so that people don't feel disenfranchised by their society. So that's kind of what I have in mind is that um, the way that Heinlein goes after this idea of happiness is about happiness as an emotion, not about the idea of flourishing. And so when he's talking about society in the way that he is here, the standard of living, I assume he has something in mind that is more akin to flourishing and leisure activities and the access to those activities. And that, that has to be what he means here. I, I don't think it does. In fact, I think you're completely wrong here. Uh, we are going <laughs> to definitely break down. I mean, Heinlein does this amazing thing in this book, uh, you know, amazing for someone who is an American citizen and is is strongly identified as having been uh, a conservative uh, ideologue in the, the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, we can nuance that statement later. That's painting with pretty broad strokes. But for someone who's, you know, a real American patriot, maybe let's put it that way. Yeah, he has Dubois, who is like really the hero of this book. It's Dubois, right? He has Dubois go on this, make this speech. You said go on this rant at first, Brandon. And I think actually that's right. I almost did it too, because uh, it feels like a rant to us, right? That that the opening lines of the Declaration of Independence are a bunch of nonsense. We will break that down later. But I don't actually think that your reading of what's meant by happiness in the Declaration of Independence is quite right. So we'll argue about that later. But I think that actually <laughs> the real answer to what does he even mean by living standards is just right here in the sentence. It's even right here in this item on the list that he's not talking about a, a society that has a lot of leisure time. He's not talking about people who have like real, a lot of fun in bowling leagues and go to church because the living standards here are qualified by the, or the height of the living standards here is qualified by how much productivity permits. He's talking about products. He's talking about stuff. He's talking about technology. He's talking about material comfort. He's saying that people have shelter, people have comfortable shelters, they have food, they have clothes, they have things, right? He's not here talking about leisure time, about like what their work hours are like. Do they even have weekends or, or not? We don't know. You know, that's not here in this book really at all. So it's totally possible that people are working more than they are today. Of course, people today have longer work weeks than they did in the 1950s and have fewer weekends and so on. But none of that is is invoked here. I don't think at all. It's really just stuff. And we don't even have any sense here of how equitably that stuff is distributed, right? The, because the standard is measured by uh, what is available, what is being produced, not how many people have access to that stuff. So other things that aren't here, like quality of healthcare, uh, longevity, like, like life expectancy, not mentioned here at all. It's just how much stuff are we producing? So I think this is a pretty bleak uh, picture here, pretty bleak idea, actually, though Heinlein would disagree, right? He, for him, this is actually the way to measure a high standard of living. I think for me, I'm much more interested in how many hours per week do I have to work to have a middle-class home? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a really fair point. I guess my assumption here that is unstated or unspoken or has been to this point is that all of these technological efficiencies, especially as they were thought of, you know, like look at the Jetsons future, you know, that came not too long after this book was written, that the sort of ideals that lead to that the ideal that a world that stems from technological efficiency is more leisure time, is a better life, is that the material goods and security are all there. So my sense is that one sort of entails the other, though it's not clear, as you pointed out, that Heinlein really believes that. No, in fact, I think it's clear he doesn't believe that. And we're going to talk about that later. We're going to, when we get into the economic section, which is like an hour and a half from now, probably, uh, we're going to look at Heinlein's attitude towards work and what work is for. Uh, and uh, we'll see if he actually thinks leisure is is any good at all. But let's uh, let's carry on with this list. We've got one item left on this list before we flip it around and say, hey, what's missing? Uh, and what does that tell us? The last item on this list here is crime. Crime is at its lowest ebb. Uh, the uh, cynic in me, wants to say, well, obviously, because you don't have very many laws. And if you don't have laws, you can't have crimes because a crime means breaking the law. So like just this is just padding the numbers here, right? This doesn't actually tell us anything about how people are behaving in society. In particular, I think we, we know definitely in this book that like murder is still a crime. There are laws about murder. Definitely are. That's not a law that's missing. Violent crime is something that is discussed at great length. This is why we know about the terror so my guess here is that it's just, well two things. One is I'm not sure that that if uh, that because Heinlein here is I think really envisioning a uh, trickle down economics, a supply side economics utopia here. There aren't a lot of white collar crimes, so that's uh, part of maybe why crime is at its lowest ebb. But I think it's also clear that Heinlein means violent crime, right? He means murder. He means robbery, right? He means crimes against uh, people, cri- violent crimes against people, and violent crimes against against property. And I think that what that suggests here is that for Heinlein, one of the fundamental purposes of government is to protect people from others and to protect their property from others as well. Right. Protection of property is a big is a big deal. I mean, there's also a pretty, uh, it looks like in this novel, there's like really serious drug laws as well. Um, and that like the dealing of drugs and things like that, all the kind of street crime, that sort of stuff, petty crimes, that's all been eradicated as well. One thing that Heinlein slides in here as an idea about crime, and I alluded to this earlier when I mentioned the kind of violent reinforcement of norms that are that is present in the society is that the government does way overstep its bounds when intervening on this level to have a school corporally punish children to have i don't know if if that extends to work your boss flog you that the government no longer believes strictly speaking that parents and local communities by themselves are doing a good enough job of stemming the malformation or poor formation of uh, children as they become adults. And so the government steps in on that to enforce its norms and standards. So one thing, I mean, it's just evident in this book that Heinlein thinks that that the government needs to be authoritarian in this way because you can't trust people to raise good children. 
Right. So let's just take all of this together. What we've got on the list in this positive sense, then we'll then we'll flip it around and see what's not here. But it seems like just based on what is on this list that Heinlein's greatest concerns for government, the thing that Heinlein, at least in this book, thinks that government should be doing is maintaining order. Uh, protecting people and property from violence, right? So, so just creating a society, ensuring a society that is not violent, that is internally peaceful and orderly, while otherwise allowing people the greatest liberty possible, right? And in particular, with an eye towards economic activity, with an eye towards business activity, right? So, and this is, I think, pretty recognizable to us as essentially the political philosophy of someone like Ronald Reagan or Margaret Thatcher, right? Yeah, it, it does appear to be that way, that society is really an economy, not a series of linked communities uh, that have their own norms and values that all cooperate. Uh, it's that the best way to order society is economically, and economic health is how we measure whether or not a society is functioning well. Uh, we've recently seen the flaws in that thinking, I think, this past year, um, especially. But yes, this is a very clear kind of example of American conservatism in the early part of the second half of the 20th century. I want to look now at some of the things that are not on this list that we might think are important. And we can just maybe go back and, and forth on this, Brandon. But I think one of the things that really jumps out to me, I've, I've invoked already, is any sense of environmental stewardship or environmental protection. Just nothing nothing about that here. So there's nothing about, you know, pollution, about the ozone layer, about climate change, about uh, even just about resource management, right? It's just it's what's emphasized here is productivity, 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 but nothing about managing resources that are going to become scarce if we have such a high level of productivity and so on. And that's something that really jumps out to me. One of the reasons that really jumps out to me here, of course, is that you and I spend a lot of time on our show, The Gene Wolf Literary Podcast, where we are going through in chronological order, one story, one novel at a time, the body of literature, the massive body of literature that science fiction and fantasy writer Gene Wolf created. Gene Wolf, also someone who is frequently identified by fans and by, by scholars of science fiction writing as being an American conservative. And there's a lot of overlap in the things that Gene Wolfe is interested in or concerned about and what Heinlein is talking about in this book. But one of the things that is so important to Gene Wolfe is, in fact, environmentalism. It is one of his major themes, and it just doesn't appear here in Heinlein at all. And that really jumped out to me. It jumped out to me as well. But I think what underlines uh, or what's in the background or assumed by Heinlein, uh, as is assumed by many of these kind of pro-capitalist kind of uh, expansion is the norm, like um, uh, type thinkers is that resources are actually unlimited. And so Heinlein has created a universe where that is demonstrably true. He doesn't really think or talk about the environmental damage that could be the result of such a system. But if you can mine the moons of Titan for resources that's uninhabitable, maybe you can get those to Earth in a relatively cheap way, and then you don't have to worry about mining those things on Earth. So it's kind of this, this fantasy 
that is in place in the background of this novel that we don't actually need to worry about these things because one, we're, technology is going to solve the problem, right? Technology is going to solve the problems, not only of our individual flaws or weaknesses, as we see in the power suits of the mobile infantry, but also solve our the way those individual problems coalesce and collectivize into social ills. And Heinlein is not looking at strip mining, destroying the Amazon forest, rainforest, destroy like getting rid of natural habitats and ecosystems for our uh, immediate profit and gain as a negative here, because ultimately technology will provide the solution for these problems. And it's it's kind of the fantasy of people who think this way, that all of these are short-term problems and we can rely on our ingenuity to solve them instead of just doing things well and in balance with the good to begin with. Yeah. You, you, you've said ingenuity here. I think another word that we might use for that though, from this perspective is entrepreneurship, right? That the attitude here really seems to be, we don't need government laws. We don't need government regulations to protect the environment. What we need is for entrepreneurs to have the freedom to use their ingenuity, use their creativity for making money to come up with technologies that they can sell or the use of which they can sell to people. People to clean up the environment and solve other types of problems as well. I, I do think that that is the approach that Heinlein, or at least the Heinlein who wrote this book, right, the Heinlein of this moment would agree with, right? I mean, just to shorten it down and say, we don't need government regulations for this. What we need is Elon Musk. Right. And um, the counterbalance that Heinlein has in mind here has a lot to do with who he thinks should be in charge of society, right? Because the people in charge of society are ones who are aren't businessmen or scientists. They're the ones who clear the way, in a sense, for businessmen and scientists to work together to solve these problems. But they also understand the value of group identity, of service, of sacrifice, of a very specific ideologically informed idea of the good that comes from their military training. And I think what Heinlein is reaching for here is the notion that a society should want its leaders to have some sort of skin in the game, so to speak, to have some real stakes associated with the success and failures of their leadership. Uh, and this notion of skin in the game of like having personal stakes associated with one's civic responsibility has had a bit of resurgence lately, thanks in part to the works of Nicholas Nassim Taleb, his inserto work uh, books, but also the fact that it's becoming more and more evident as more of our politics is moving into the realm of theater and televised through news that it's not clear that many of our leaders in government, or at least the way they're represented, they're represented on television, have this same sort of skin in the game. And Highline's concept of this uh, personal stakes of the success and failure of one's leadership, of one's um, service in being in service to one's constituents, 
Heinlein's concept is that military service is the only way to have civic to have skin in the game and to represent civic service and civic virtue. But he's ignoring ignoring all the other systems of government, including you know agrarian societies, where it was clear that the leaders needed to, I don't know occasionally treat workers well, or at least care for their land or something like that um, in order to get the value they need out of their leadership. Their failure to lead might actually destroy their ability to have wealth. And so I think what's behind all this is Heinlein thinking about this concept of personal stakes of leadership, but really narrowly focusing on only one form in which this makes sense. And And I think he's ignoring a lot of the ways in which you mentioned the arts, architecture, you know, creating habitats that work with the environment, that create a sense of beauty, that give people a sense of peace and belonging. All of these things are other ways that people can serve their society uh, and to demonstrate that they have stakes in the success or failure of these things. Uh, but Heinlein's really only thinking about businessmen, scientists and veterans. And uh, I know that kind of took us a little bit away from the question, but I'm sure you can tie it in there somehow. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you're, uh, you're getting a little ahead here, but we are going to turn to systems of government and uh, those and, and the ideologies around that next. But I do want to keep thinking about what is government for? In, in Heinlein's view here in Starship Troopers by by looking at what's not on the list. And you've actually touched on a number of them there, right? There's nothing here about, about artistic creativity. There's nothing here about writing awesome science fiction novels, right? That's not the measurement of this system is working quite well, though. You know, that matters to me, I guess. And, and <laughs> it matters to Heinlein too, but it's not something that government is for on this list. Something else that's not on this list, but yet is something that we know government is doing is education. But it is not something that... Major Reed is holding up here as being an indication that they are living in the best possible political system does not hold that up as a as a evidence of that. Well, you're right about that. And I really do think, you know, that that is and, and you mentioning that is why I think that there are some entailments, some benefits of belonging in the society that Heinlein Heinlein simply just does not talk about. But I've made assumptions about, as I brought up earlier. But yeah, uh, global compulsory education, the federal government, as I mentioned when I was talking about uh, the history and moral philosophy course, this is the place where they really step in and say, this is a required course for everybody. You don't even need to pass it. You have to take it. But all of our instructors are from military service. They are all citizens. And it's at least meant to open people's eyes to the benefits of citizenship and why we preserve the system. Before we move on to actually looking at what citizenship even is here in this book, is there anything else that you find to be a rather glaring omission here on this list of things that government is for, the list of, of things you know for which we come together to establish the rules of our society? What else is missing here that you think matters? Well, pretty much every civic good that we think of, like <laughs> pretty much every single one. Like, so I have, I, I mean, like there's in terms of like classical conservatism, there's uh, a lot of ideas that I like tend to agree with. So like, let's I, like, I think abstraction is a very healthy uh, mental tool in look in being able to evaluate ideas of the past, separating ideas from people, looking at what's 
good in a concept or an idea rather than the flaws of the person delivering it. To me, that's a healthy attitude. I think that, um, Designing uh, habitats that are in harmony with the environment is a good idea, like from an architectural or aesthetic point of view. Uh, I think there are some traditions worth preserving, some are worth reevaluating and getting rid of, but generating traditions to create belonging in society is a good. Uh, so there's there's strains of ideas here that I that Heinlein doesn't even touch. He talks about military service as kind of the only way that traditions are kept, maintained, and formed. Uh, and 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 continue and he doesn't talk about art at all which we've we've which we've mentioned he doesn't talk about how people live in a place with other people he doesn't engage with any of this stuff that makes up the richness of human life um it does seem as though this kind of global government has created a really diverse and rich world, social world. Uh, Johnny Rico is uh, from the Philippines. He speaks Tagalog as a native language, but everybody kind of speaks standard English. He serves with Indians and Russians uh, and, and all sorts of people from other what we'd consider nationalities now and races. So I, I, I think Heinlein thinks about diversity in a, in a fairly positive way here, but he misses the point of almost all of the richness of human life, uh, of the way we choose what to belong to, of how our own past forms us, our own sense of what our valuable traditions form us, our own sense of belonging forms us, and replaces it all with a an extremely openly authoritarian government that really only cares about military service. So I think he misses everything. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and I think you make a great point here, Brandon, which is to say that the list that we're trying to come up with here, and we're going to, we're going to leave this behind here at this point, but what we're trying to establish here is not what are the things that Heinlein thinks are great <laughs> in life, that he values, right? It's not what is best in life, Heinlein. That's not what we're trying to establish here. We're trying to establish what are the things that Heinlein thinks government is for. And one of the things that is very clear is that although Heinlein values a lot of these things, right, this cultural diversity is something that Heinlein values values a lot. We don't know that Johnny Rico is Filipino until like the very end of this book. It's actually supposed to be a bit of a shocking ending or a shocking revelation when we discover that. This is a trick Heinlein plays in a, a number of, of books. But that's not something that it seems anyway from this list, from this book, that Heinlein thinks government should be doing, that government should be trying to promote, that the characteristics of society and culture, whatever those might be, are not something that government should be trying to create, right? Government should be getting out of the way, not actively trying to create or shape society and culture. That's what seems clear to me here, which is not to suggest that these are not at all things that Heinlein cares about, right? We're looking at what is government for? But Heinlein entirely ignores the fact that everybody who is in the government has gone through an extensive and rigorous indoctrination program, and that one of the effects of this one world government, the effect of the fact of this government is enforced diversity, right? And the military is a place where enforced diversity happens, and it happens, I don't know, to different to varying degrees of success, depending, I suppose, on what unit you're in. Um, yeah, Heinlein is ignoring the effects of government uh, and, and of the government that he has in mind here and is trying to focus on the explicit uses of government. So he's really not looking at the, the whole picture here. 
Right. One thing that we've not brought up at all, because I think we take it for granted, we take it as given, but would have actually been another shocking thing in this in this book in the 1950s is women in the military. We were both in the military. We talked uh, maybe too much about that in the, the first episode. We're about to again. Uh, women were in the military with us. There were just women in our unit. That was not a weird thing for us. That was perfectly normal. Uh, so it seems normal here in this book to us as well, but would have been, uh, again, a, a fairly political statement actually when Heinlein wrote this book, but he is not saying that promoting gender equality is an explicit purpose of government. But I think you're right, also Brandon, to point out that that it is something the government is doing here. So let's approach some of these topics another way, and we'll just move into now talking about citizenship, and then we'll also talk about forms of government and uh, really uh, like democracy, right? Our form of government. <laughs> but let's start with citizenship here, right? So as we've said a few times, citizenship in this world is restricted to military veterans, right? You have to have served uh, at least one term in one of these branches of the armed services in order to have the right to vote and in order to hold public office. And what Heinlein has in mind here is actually a pretty limited idea or a pretty limited definition of what citizenship is. Uh, there are really maybe two ways of thinking about citizenship. One is political citizenship and the other is legal citizenship. And political citizenship is what Heinlein has in mind here, right? Political citizenship, meaning you get to participate in government, you get to participate in the politics of the society. Legal citizenship means that you have legal rights. And legal citizenship is really actually what we mean when we say citizen or when we talk about citizenship today. That is something that we owe to the legacy of uh, Roman civilization. And and in fact, one of the great legacies of of Roman civilization is its legal culture which still really governs actually most of the globe. Uh, not ours, actually, but most of the globe is governed by uh, <laughs> that, by Roman legal concepts. And this idea that citizenship really means what laws apply to you or really what justice system do you get recourse to? That's what is meant by citizenship really for most of the world. But Heinlein here is actually thinking more in the what we might sometimes call the classical or ancient Greek model, but actually really means the Athenian model in which being a citizen means that your full-time job is to be involved in government. And that that is something that is inherently restricted, is not available to all people because not all people can do government or politics is their full-time job because like there are other jobs that need to happen in the world. And so like for the Athenian democracy, where we think of Athens as being this sort of earliest or one of the earliest democracies, but that was utterly dependent on the fact that the only people involved in voting and holding office and so on were wealthy people who could, who didn't have to do any actual labor during their days. And so could spend their days doing this. Uh, and then also there, some people were paid to do this work as well. So like if you did actually have a farm that like you needed to hire someone else or really buy another slave to make up for the fact that you were going to be gone for a year while you held a political office, you would get paid for that or something like that. Uh, those are sort of the, but at any rate, those are the sort of contrasting ideas of citizenship here. And right. So in our societies, if you're an adult, you are uh, you have legal citizenship, and of course, children have legal citizenship of a, of a different sort. Uh, parents are kind of a mediator there in the way that that operates. But even political citizenship, then, in the societies that we live in today, right, our liberal democracies, it is not tied to any kind of service. Even in places with compulsory military service, places like Austria and Israel, uh, Finland as well, that 
failure to comply with that does not result in losing your political citizenship. And so this is actually a pretty controversial thing. Like if we instituted a system like this, it would be a radical change in the way that our societies and the way that our government functions. Heinlein is clearly advocating for this here. And what I want to do is actually just read what Heinlein says about why this is a good idea, right? Why a limited citizenship is actually the fundamental component of this greatest of all political systems. And this bit, this is a major read. Again, it's actually still the same speech. It's a great speech. There's a lot going on in this monologue here, but I'm just going to read this bit of text and then we'll, we'll, we'll break it down again. So here's what Major Reed says. Under our system, every voter and office holder is a man who has demonstrated through voluntary and difficult service that he places the welfare of the group ahead of personal advantage. And the idea here is, I'm, I'm done quoting, but the idea here is that the, the that difference there, that makes a person a better political citizen than any of the other criteria that have been used in the past to determine political citizenship, like wealth, property, ownership, uh, age, that sort of thing. And this is, you were using earlier, Brandon, the phrase like skin in the game here, right? But I want to talk about this. So first of all, Brandon, let's accept the premise that political citizenship should actually be limited, that it should not be universal. Let's just accept that that's a premise. And let's think then about what in what ways might be good to limit it. So do you think that this requirement, uh, really meaning the demonstration of a sense of altruistic collectivism by means of military service, right? Do you think that that is the sole characteristic or a primary characteristic maybe that would best determine who would do a good job managing public affairs? Or are there maybe some other criteria? Mm-hmm. I really struggled with this concept. I guess it's because I've been in the military and I know (laughs) a bunch of the people that have served in it. Uh, And I I will say, yes, there, it is the case that some of the best people, most civically minded in, in the virtuous sense, uh, care for others, uh, really know how to take care of groups, that sort of thing are in the military, but also some of the, the real, drags of our society uh, are are in the military as well. But they're everywhere. I mean, you find the best and the worst, I think, in any sort of group environment you, you belong to. The real problem that I have with this is that Heinlein does not seem to imagine that those who seek power from a sense of, say, like a narcissistic need for power or sociopathy or something like that. People, petty tyrants who enjoy wielding power over others, uh, causing pain, sadists. I don't know. Any of these sorts of people don't, none of these people seem to exist in the society. And so this is wholly good and virtuous. Yet it seems to me as though this system can be gamed as much as any other sort of system that enfranchises a specific group of people to be powerful. You're going to have good ones and you're going to have bad ones. Heinlein seems to think that the way he's thought about the mobile infantry is the way to weed out the bad ones. But my question to him would be, well, why not just join like the Navy or something like that and get an admin job? We know a lot about the mobile infantry, but the other branches of the military seem to have uh, a little more wiggle room. And so while Heinlein may believe that those willing to do violence on behalf of the greater good are most well-suited to lead a society. Anybody who serves any branch can be a citizen in this case. And so what it doesn't seem to me that those who wish to do violence and enjoy violence 
or those who think they can game the system by serving a lighter sentence, so to speak, in order to become a citizen, that this is the way to limit voting. I think there are probably better ways like a, um, an exam of some kind, like, a, I don't know, any any sort of exam, like do congressmen take the uh, citizenship test? Uh, to <laughs> they see, you clearly know, that, do that not. Might be, yeah, that might be a really good idea <laughs> to make sure they know what we're asking of those who are seeking uh, to be citizens of this country. You know, so I, I just think that Heinlein's vision here this is this is an this is such an idealistic idea that ignores the types of ills that our system seems to currently reward by putting people in power who are most likely to wield their power in a way that enriches themselves. And I don't see how a person joining any branch of the military to game the system in this way would be any different. It would just be a stop along the way. So I don't really see the protection here of limiting service in limiting citizenship in, in, in the way that Heinlein has in mind. Yeah, you've you've jumped ahead on on my list of questions here. Uh, you're you're two or three ahead of me, so we're going to circle back to to some of these ideas in a little bit. But I want to bring us back to the, the 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 question that I've got in mind here is really just thinking about actually what do we think are and this is maybe the way I should have phrased it the first time is just what do we think are the requirements that we want uh, for people to have if they're going to vote and if they're going to if they're going to hold office, right? If if we are accepting the premise that there should be any limits on political citizenship, you know, what should they be? What are the things that we're looking for in our representatives or our public office holders? And what do we think are some requirements that voters might have? You brought up one, you know, passing the citizenship exam, right, might be some criteria like showing, uh, demonstrating a knowledge of how the government actually functions before you're allowed to participate in it, participate in it at this level. Uh, that is actually something that has been proposed, uh, is proposed quite frequently, actually, in America. I don't think, I don't know if it's ever actually been taken up uh, at the congressional level, uh, but it's certainly something that has shown up in political speeches from time to time. I actually had, in my high school, growing up in Illinois, we actually had a requirement not to become citizens not to be able to vote, but to graduate from high school, that actually is kind of reminiscent of this history and moral philosophy class in the sense that we actually did have to pass an exam on both the U.S. and the Illinois Constitution. Uh, my understanding is that Illinois has since gone away from that requirement because too many people were not passing the exam. And hey, you got to graduate people from high school because uh, high school, all education has become a business now. Uh, and you got to move people, you got to move people through the system. But that was like a really important feature of high school for me. Uh, people were really sweating about passing that exam or not. Uh, it was something that people were quite nervous about. In fact, my recollection is that people were more concerned about that than they were with taking the SATs and the ACTs. Did you have anything like that growing up in Pennsylvania? Uh, I did not. I, I went through school a little bit after you did, and that that wasn't uh, a part of our requirements in order to pass, we did have to do like a test. So I built a website about Converse sneakers or something like that. <laughs> or like not not a test. I'm sorry, but like a pro final project. Yeah, website about uh, about Chucks. I like Chucks. Not that I've worn shoes in over a year, right? But uh, <laughs> uh, I like Chucks. But a website about Chucks is not the criteria that I am going to use to determine whether or not you should be allowed to vote, and certainly not whether I'm going to vote for you for Congress or you know 
senator or president or whatever the case may may be. But I think something that we're hinting at here, of course, right, is a is another type of requirement that someone other than Heinlein might decide to advocate for is not this demonstration of a sense of altruistic collectivism, but something like a demonstration of aptitude for doing the job, right? Uh, so education, uh, maybe experience, right? Like if, if part of the job of a deliberative or legislative body like the U.S. Congress or like parliament, that sort of thing, if part of that job is to manage a budget, Maybe we might have some criteria about, are you good at math? Yeah, I mean, all of that is a really great idea. I, I You know, it's not just voting, uh, limiting voting, which is kind of a question to those who we think deserve to vote, uh, you know. I, and, and and you can come up with a bunch of rules of like what excludes people and what people should be included, but definitely in terms of leaders, yeah, a lot of our legislators, they should be lawyers, but they shouldn't be lawyers because they want to be legislators, right? <laughs> so like that that should be a question uh, somehow, you know, determined. I don't know how. Tests can always be gamed. It's very hard, and I think there's uh, often a wish, like a fantasy that we could just create a system where people have to jump through the certain types of hoops in order to uh, prove their worthiness. But things are so much messier than that. And there are so many problems. I think we just have to determine a way to figure out whether or not those who are leaders have a clear sense of what the good is. Maybe it's essay writing and um, have a clear vision of the good and being open to be in conflict about that vision. And also, yes, have some experience in achieving something other than taking the steps that they've taken in order to get elected to office. I don't <laughs> know if a rigid system is ever going to really work um, because things are always kind of loosely chaotic in society on some level. Yeah, right. One of the real requirements that I think almost every person might agree on uh, that we should have, at least for people who are going to hold office, not necessarily for people who are going to vote. Uh, but one of the requirements should be that you don't want the job. <laughs> right. I'm immediately suspicious of anyone who wants to be the U.S. president or senator or congressman. I mean, it's just it's a terrible job. No one should want to have that job. Like, that's a terrible quality of life. <laughs> you know, so uh, there's something that has to be wrong with you, I think, if you if you want that if you want that job. So, and in fact, this is actually something that in ancient Athens, the ancient Athenian democracy, they had in mind a lot of the jobs that people had. And in fact, what we so often mean by democracy is people get to vote for office holders. But what people in Athens meant by democracy was people, the people, regular citizens have to do the job of government. And so people essentially were conscripted into the government through a lottery system for a term of office, usually a year. Sometimes it could be a little longer than that. Uh, also, jury duty. Juries for them were hundreds of people, not 12, you know, 500 people sometimes, uh, depending on the type of court case. And the idea was that, of course, obviously no one wants to do that work. Uh, these are largely wealthy people who don't have to do any work, so they're not going to want to do this work. But even if they are farmers who actually do have to do some physical labor on their farms, though they also own a number of slaves who are going to be doing a lot of that work as well, even if that is true, they're probably still going to actually rather do that physical labor on their farm than manage the books of the government and do all of that type of stuff. And so people had to get essentially drafted into it. And I don't know, there might be something something worth exploring there. But that rambling aside there does bring up another type of requirement that many, many 
that many states have had in history, uh, including our own and our it's in our own constitution until there was an amendment passed to eradicate this requirement for having access to political citizenship, for having the right to vote. And that was wealth. Uh, and this, again, is going back to the, the phrase that you used earlier, Brandon, the skin in the game. There was uh, in early modernity up really to the Industrial Revolution, this sense that only people who owned property, only people who were wealthy could really appreciate what was at stake in the decisions that a government is making. And therefore, they're the only people who should actually be stakeholders in the government who should be able to vote or hold office, that you had to be a property owner, you had to have wealth. Do you think we should go back to that? I don't see how it's possible to go back to that. I I also have, I don't know, done my homework in English literature reading, uh, you know, about the aristocrats or read, you know, some of their own literature work that they did on their leisure time, that wealth is not necessarily a sign of nobility or goodness, um, but especially in kind of a merchant driven, middle class uh, driven system of generating, creating and holding wealth. I'm glad that, you know, like women can hold property now, right? Uh, (laughs) There's also, there were all sorts of kind of secret limitations on who could even own property in in a lot of these systems. In any event, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's not even possible to think of a way to go back to that. And how do we even determine what wealth is? Is it merely property ownership? You know, is the 700 square foot lot that I own in Philadelphia, (laughs) is that wealth? (laughs) You know, is that, is that property ownership in the sense that, uh, would give me real skin in the game in the sense of owning a couple hundred acres with workers that I had to think about and land and generating crops and protecting the soil and all this other sorts sort of things caught up in an agrarian system and like kind of a post-industrial global capital system. It seems very difficult for us to imagine just how we could determine what the cutoff of wealth is. If you can afford rent and rents are expensive Should he be allowed to vote, even though you don't own property, although you're still making the payments on someone else's property? I mean, it's just it it would be too much to untangle. Yeah. I mean, how would we actually manage that, of course, would be would be nuts. And a real question there even is, do you actually own that 700 square foot lot in Philadelphia or does the bank and this is a question that most homeowners would have to would have to answer. And so there's a real risk there if we decided to you know make this a criteria that actually what we would be really doing is making an age criteria where basically only people over sixty would be able to vote and hold office, right? So disenfranchising you know tens of millions of people. Just you know just thinking about the United States, if we did did something like that. Uh, functionally speaking, Glenn, that is exactly who votes though and who holds <laughs> office. So I mean we're kind of already there. Right. Well, age has been another requirement. It is a requirement for us. Uh, We, in the 60s, maybe it was the early 70s, actually, lowered the voting age from 21 to 18 in the United States. There have been proposals from time to time to uh, lower that even more. In fact, actually, it might even be the case that in the UK, it is actually 16 now. I might not be right about that. I'm not a citizen of the UK, so that's never applied to me, so I'm not sure. But age is definitely a requirement that we have here. But ages have been much higher than 18 or 16 or even 21 in other civilizations, other states in the in the past, with the idea that 
age brings about wisdom. Age confers wisdom. And we want wise people. We want people who are calm and steady. Uh, we don't want, you know, the passions of youth uh, making rash decision, making rash decisions, right? But this also goes back then to the phrase that you're using here, Brandon, skin in the game, which is which is to say that uh, the older you are, the less skin you have in the game in the sense that you, the future is shorter for you than it is for a young person. So maybe the flip side of that is that we shouldn't actually let old people vote. Maybe once you hit 40, you should be done. That That's a great idea. Maybe there should be an age range <laughs> in voting. I, I, I do tend to agree with, you know, Aristotle here <laughs> with uh, age being a factor in determining uh, citizenship or, or voting rights, which is essentially this, that people who are still in the process of formation, which is namely children, have not demonstrated that they have developed and thought through their own opinions about the, the polis um, because they're still either maybe imitating their parents or some other form of authority. This is now happening with adults all over the place, right? And it's not to say that people can't have common opinions. It's that when opinions represent a group identity, uh, and it's hard to debate then because what you're really doing, if you're disagreeing with somebody is attacking their identity on some level, which is how so many debates feel in our public discourse, um, that children are just not able to fully step into that role of responsibility because they are still in the process of formation. I think that is uh, a fair critique of, you know, at least having an 18 year old who has had to go through all of the compulsory education, who's old enough to make a decision about whether or not they want to give their lives uh, over to the government, turn the keys of the car over to the government in that sense, uh, are thinking about having to get a job, all these sorts of things where they're beginning to ha have real stakes in their citizenship. To me, that's a fair system of order when it comes to understanding why age is a factor in determining when you can legally vote. I hope we've done a pretty good job here of of being a little bit silly about this idea, because this is not an idea that either you or I support, right? This idea that there should be a kind of limit to political citizenship here. I think aside from the one you just mentioned, Brandon, uh, age, right? To coming to what we recognize as uh, adult maturity, which can vary, you know, place to place. Uh, and I, although we don't actually technically tie that to having completed the course of compulsory education, I would be, I think, okay if we did say that. Um, I also would be, and we'll talk about this perhaps in a little bit, okay with elongating how long, the, the period of compulsory education. But uh, that's, that's for another question. I want to go back to something that you were getting at already, Brandon, which is just the matter of what are some of the pros and cons of creating a distinct class of citizens who manage public affairs and connecting that distinct class of citizens to the military? Let's actually give Heinlein the benefit of the doubt here, though that was not your immediate impulse, Brandon, and it might not be mine either, but let's do that anyway. Let's do some of the pros first. Like, What actually would be some benefits of doing something like this? Well, I don't think Heinlein is entirely in the wrong in thinking about the motivations, uh, maybe the ordinary motivations of people who choose to serve the military. The number of people who do it out of a sense of a desire to serve, a desire to serve something greater than themselves, I think 
typically outnumbers those who are doing it purely out of a, a mode of self-interest. So it's not the worst way to weed out totally self-interested people. Um, and so I think that that is, is kind of a pro. You're also exposed to a, at least in our military, and I think Kindlines as well, a much broader and diverse group of people in the many regions and r distinct regionalisms that make up the United States of America. So you do have a much deeper appreciation, I think, for diversity. I certainly have a, a deeper appreciation of diversity thanks to serving in the military um, and also recognizing the needs of people that come from overlooked and ignored communities from our federal government and also their own state governments. So seeing how need has driven people to join the military also uh, opened my eyes and I think would open a lot of veterans' eyes uh, or and it has opened a lot of veterans' eyes to the kind of failures of our government as well on some levels. Also, uh, you know, on the final level here, in my opinion, you're fighting always, almost always, foreign wars. Uh, you're rarely defending, as a member of the U.S. military, the country from the domestic enemies. You're almost always looking at foreign enemies. So you have a sense of the goals of the government in terms of foreign policy and what the rationale is behind getting into a violent conflict. Uh, and I think those are all things that really benefit somebody who's thinking about the whole system of a government and the different roles it plays locally, uh, on the state level, on the federal level, and then also on the foreign policy level. Yeah, this question of having some experience in the thing, or one of the things, one of the very big and important things that government does, organize and operate the military, having that experience is definitely a boon. That's definitely something that uh, is helpful if you're going to be a voter, I mean, perhaps especially helpful if you are going to hold public office. Uh, I think especially if you're going to be the president of the United States, having gone through military service so that you're, you know how to function on very little sleep. Uh, and also how to take, you know, power naps while standing up <laughs> uh, while walking here and even while walking, you know, maybe down the corridors of the White House uh, is also a real pro because you do not get much sleep from that job. So, yeah, there definitely are some real things that you can get out of the military that do equip you to be a good voter or to be a good office holder or really just a good really just a good worker of any sort, right? To accomplish tasks, to take tasks, to take tasks seriously, right? To know how to put in effort and so on. Those are really positive things that people learn in the military, or at least that the military can uh, enhance or exacerbate in people as well. Uh, but you bring up as well, Brandon, some of the things that can go wrong with this. And one of them, of course, is that really what Heinlein is trying to say here is that people in the military, the fundamental thing they get out of being in the military is an instilled sense of selflessness, an idea of putting the group ahead of their individual needs, a type of collectivism. That itself is interesting because the things that he wants government to do is actually to pr protect individuals and to promote individualism. But then he wants these people who have voluntarily gone in for a type of altruistic collectivism to be the people managing affairs. There, uh, There's some Plato. Uh, there's some Plato's Republic going on there. Maybe we'll get into that later. But even if we accept that that's true, we're going to ask if it is next. But even if we accept that that is true, 
I'm not sure how long that system will last, because if you are setting aside one group of people and saying, you now are uh, this minority group of people who get to manage the public affairs of not just yourselves, but of everyone else. And we're setting you aside to do that because you have demonstrated that you are selfless and that you won't privilege yourself, your own interests, the interests of your family or any other type of group or community membership you have. You will manage this the best for everyone. I'm not sure how long that is going to stay true for. In fact, I'm highly skeptical that it's going to stay true for long at all. If you have one group, minority group, that gets to be in charge of everyone else and there's no mechanism in place for undoing that, then there is no reason why all of these veterans might not simply start really enlarging the benefits that veterans get and that other people are having to pay the taxes for. Uh, so retirement benefits, education benefits, all things that that veterans in, in uh, the U.S. military get, benefits you and I have, have received and in some cases continue to receive as well. But if those are the people who are in charge, right, there's no reason that they would not use the state to benefit themselves and themselves only at the expense of other people. That's the danger of putting any one group of people, any single group of people in charge of everybody else with no recall mechanism for that. So that's a real, that's a real danger there. And we would have this danger, whether it's veterans or you know, union members or educators or farmers or whatever it is, if we're putting one sole group in charge of managing things for everyone else with no check on that, there simply is no incentive for them not to write a bunch of laws that benefit only them at the expense of other people. And, and this could be Become, in fact, even more dangerous. This is in many ways what happens in the Roman Republic uh, and, and is something that leads to or contributes to the, the century-long process of the fall of the Roman Republic. One of the principal factors there is that Roman political citizenship at this time is tied uh, in some more complicated ways than Heinlein is proposing here, but is, is tied to military service. The officer class of the Roman army we talked about this last time, the officer class of the Roman army is made up of wealthy people who are going to become office holders. Soldiers, enlisted soldiers are people who are going to vote, though they're not going to be able to hold office. There are different requirements for that. Wealthy Romans, or elite Romans, maybe I should say, with political ambitions, see becoming an officer, and in particular becoming a general in the Roman army as a stepping stone towards achieving political power, which they want to do precisely to be able to use the state to benefit themselves, their family, uh, and their clan, and then also political factions that they, they are uh, participating in as well. And one of the ways that they do that is by getting soldiers who used to serve under them to vote for them. And one of the ways that they do that is by conferring really just cash on those people or promising, you know, to, to craft legislation that is going to benefit specifically my former soldiers, right? If you vote for me and I get in office as cons one of the consuls, I'm going to sponsor legislation that gives all of you free farms, you know, over yonder or gives each of you uh, an extra retirement benefit every month or something like that. So you, I need you to vote for me. And so it creates this loyalty to individuals that you knew in the military rather than loyalty to the state, even though the idea behind this in the first place was this demonstrates loyalty to the state. It ceases to do that eventually. And this was one of the contributing factors to the catastrophe that was the collapse of the, the Roman Republic. Right. And there's no evidence to suggest that different groups, subgroups within this veteran class would form 
I don't know, power brokerships, essentially. And eventually you might end up with a triumvirate of people in charge of everybody else. And then after that, one person in the triumvirate might think, hey, there should only be one of us really calling the shots. There's no reason why this wouldn't lead to another uh, kingship or monarchy. Heinlein has so much implicit faith in an idea of goodness that he never explicitly spells out in this novel, which is really really to the novel's detriment. Johnny Rico is a naive hero who was on this path toward citizenship, toward becoming a a wise counselor, a good leader, that he doesn't need to examine any of this because the hero's journey is that when the hero gets to be the king, the kingdom is at peace again. And um, it's just, it's really uh, unfortunately underbaked in this novel, these concepts. Well, I think we have said perhaps more than enough on the question of whether or not we think that this is a good idea. And in fact, I think it's clear that we don't really think this is a good idea, at least not the way that Heinlein envisions it here. But, you know, there are still, I think, maybe some good ideas here more broadly. And so last question I've got on this topic of citizenship, Brandon, is, is even if we don't connect compulsory or or, or status-conferring public service to citizenship, do you think some kind of of service like that, some kind of compulsory service, would actually be a good idea, the way that that countries like Austria and Israel and and Finland have? I do think it's a very good idea, Uh, even if it's civil service or the civil service includes things like getting involved in like the agrarian functions, agricultural functions of the state. I mean, civil service can be as broad as you want it to be. It doesn't necessarily require a person to go staple papers in a bureaucratic office. Um, (laughs) It could involve, you know, artistic strength, the mural program and arts program. But I think something that uh, a compulsory civil service, a two-year term, uh, is not the worst idea in the whole world if it can be organized in such a way that gives a deeper appreciation for those who are required to participate in it of the functioning of the government, of how much it takes to maintain a civil system, a relatively peaceful, relatively successful uh, civil institution where the power is always on and you know water is essentially clean, though some of these infrastructure things are breaking down. Hey, we could conscript people to civil service to help out with infrastructure problems and stuff like that, just to understand how deep and complex the machinations are that keep a society running, much less what it's going to take to improve a society. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think that experience would benefit people so much, right? Seeing what it is that actually goes into government. Uh, there's a you know really great uh, political drama TV show by Aaron Sorkin, uh, The West Wing, uh, that I don't know, I think everyone in the world watched that when that was on the air, although I've not revisited it in a long time, but it had a great line about one of the real consequences of the Watergate scandal is that it broke the mystique of government and gave all of us the, the impression that anyone can do it. And I think that's a pretty shrewd understanding of sort of where we are culturally with our approach to what the business of government actually is with that the actual operations of government is and maybe actually you know and this is and this is me speaking as someone who has been in the military has worked in the government uh, that I do think it is actually beneficial that it would be beneficial for citizens all citizens 
to actually have an idea of what goes into doing the work of government, doing the business of of governing, if we're going to be voting about it, if we're going to be thinking about who we want to be our representatives and so on. I think there's a real, a real benefit to that. But I do also think there's some social benefits to this as well. Something that's become a real concern in our society is that uh, the 20s are the new teen, teenage years for most people, that uh, people in their 20s are now living with their parents in ways that was not true a generation ago, because it is harder to get a career going. It's harder to find jobs. And so having something for people getting out of high school, getting out of college, whatever that might be, getting out of the military, even to have a kind of civil service to go into or military service, whatever that might be, as a sort of gateway to you know full adulthood uh, would be really beneficial as well, just in an abstract sense, right? We don't actually have a budget in front of us where we're thinking about what this would cost and all of that sort of thing. But just as an ab- in an abstract sense, that seems like that would do a lot of good there too. And also in terms of building a community, in terms of building a sense of civic duty in people, which is something that seems to be quite eroded uh, today as well, uh, that I think would be good to get back. So I think there could be a lot of benefits to that. So I certainly would be open to uh, listening to a candidate for a political office tell me about their their plan for this. And in fact, there was something like this in the 1990s, AmeriCorps. I don't know what happened to that. It was started, but it was not a compulsory <laughs> thing. I don't know that that's still around. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about that either. But yeah, I, I really do believe that giving people uh, like a real felt experience of what it takes to, as I said, not only maintain, but improve something in our society um, other than just hoping that it will improve is would be super beneficial and yeah, help rebuild our communities, maybe get people to different parts of the United States outside of the region that they grew up in and have known their whole lives, see how other people in other regions live, how they experience our government, how they experience uh, their civic institutions. It would just, I, I, I don't know, it might do a lot of good. And there is always garbage that needs to be picked up, right? Which is something we left off our list of things that Heinlein doesn't have as the purpose of government, right? Which is, yeah, taking care of the trash, trash removal, road repair. Those are things that we want government to do, perhaps more than anything else that we want them to do, in fact. And uh, this would be a way to do that as well. Well, just to sum up where we are, where we're coming down on Heinlein's proposal here of doing away with universal democracy and having a limited political citizenship tied to military service. Uh, we are not in favor of that. Neither of us is in favor of that. We like universal democracy, even though just, you know, to be clear, we think joining the military is a good idea. It was good for us. We enjoyed our time there and uh, did great things for us. But we don't think that that should be the requirement to confer political citizenship. Though at the same time, I think we both we both seem to think that some kind of compulsory service would be a really good idea. And I won't speak for you here on this, Brandon, but I also think that elongating the period of compulsory education would be beneficial to uh, all of us collectively and to us as individuals as well, you know, extending essentially high school from 18 to 20, uh, something along those lines, I think would be a real benefit uh, in a number of ways. It would take us really far afield of the outline here uh, to get into into all of that. So we should probably keep moving along. Right. Just want to say that we're taking Heinlein seriously here and think that he's he's hinting at some good ideas, even if we think his specific idea here is is not that good. But let's let's move into talking about liberalism, about Heinlein's relationship with liberalism. It's a very 
strange relationship with liberalism in this book. And and maybe we should define liberalism before we get into this, because we do not use this word uh, very wisely or very well in the United States, where we think of liberal and conservative as uh, being a type of dichotomy uh, on a kind of spectrum of political ideologies. Uh, and that's a real stupid way to, <laughs> to understand the word liberal. It actually means absolutely nothing when we do it that way, because every American is a, a, a liberal uh, or you know, almost all Americans anyways, there actually are some disturbing studies that show that liberalism is eroding very quickly in America. Uh, but anyway, what the word liberal means is simply pro-liberty. So if you're in favor of things like civil rights, uh, such as freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, uh, if you're in favor of legal rights, like a speedy and public trial, uh, probable cause, uh, refraining from self-incrimination, what we call pleading the fifth here in the United States, right? If you're in favor of those things, uh, really, if you're in favor of all the stuff in the U.S. Bill of Rights, then you're a liberal, right? And that's almost all Americans. And Heinlein actually seems to be for all of that stuff. I mean, it says personal freedom for all, right? That's the first item on the list of accomplishments of this political system. But, and we've mentioned this already, then he has Dubois argue that these liberties are not unalienable rights, uh, the way that Thomas Jefferson and friends uh, declared in their Declaration of Independence. Uh, Dubois says that these are not natural rights, that the natural condition of humans is not liberty, that liberty is something that always has to be fought for, against whom, not really clear, but it's something that always has to be purchased with violence is essentially what Dubois says here. And so, Brandon, I'm just going to lead you into this topic by asking you, do you think Heinlein has this right? Yeah, I think Heinlein is playing a, a kind of a cruel trick here with language. He's playing a semantic game that I think misses the point of what a right is, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> but the, the use of this word natural here when describing rights is really where he screws up his argument, I think. The Constitution, the founding documents of this country aren't, uh, when they talk about natural rights, they're trying to describe what a human being is in kind of like the order of things, that they're endowed with certain things just by nature of being a person, what personhood is. So, you know, they, they have these rights where like they shouldn't expect that another person is free to take their life, that you know, unless they have a duty to, um, they ought to be able to seek, you know, as I, as I alluded to earlier, flourishing without too much interference, uh, and, and they ought to be able to live as freely as possible, understanding that responsibility and limitations are a real feature of our world, <laughs> uh, and of being as well. And these things were kind of assumed. So when he's talking about natural here, what Heinlein is doing is kind of conflating definitions. He's thinking of human beings as being in nature animals, not being some other sort of being entirely. And uh, that, that I think is where he kind of errs. Uh, a right can be defined as something that we can do without having a duty not to do. That's a very difficult definition uh, to understand. Perhaps one thing we can say is, is a right is something that through the social contract we owe to one another, uh, that we give, we offer one another. So all rights are in a sense an imposition on another person. So 
Yes, I, I think Heinlein is wrong. <laughs> to put it simply. <laughs> So it's interesting to me, Brandon, that you you went kind of immediately to the the semantics of this, which I think is a critique that we could level in almost all of these these speeches, these these rants, perhaps in the book, is that Heinlein is playing a lot of semantics games. So that is going to come up again. But I think at the core of this is a real Hobbesian idea that conflict and competition are the natural state of humans and maybe the natural state of human society. And by, by Hobbesian here, I mean Thomas Hobbes, the uh, early modern English philosopher who wrote the book Leviathan, who believed very much that human beings are in a natural state of conflict and competition with one another and believed that the role of the state, the thing that government is for, the fundamental purpose of government is to maintain the peace, to prevent that natural state of competition from becoming too violent, to, from becoming disruptive. And Hobbes was a real strong authoritarian. He believed in a very strong central state, which also seems to be happening here in this book. And we'll we'll think about that again when we talk about the criminal justice system. But what really interests me here about this attitude is that it doesn't actually seem to have been borne out by three generations of anthropology, uh, three generations of anthropologists that have succeeded this book, and which all the real current research shows that human beings before we invented civilization, so human beings in a state of nature, right? Human beings as uh, another animal uh, among many species of animals living in a natural environment. In fact, we're incredibly cooperative with one another. And that is actually what allowed for us to become the most successful species on the planet is that we are inherently cooperative, not inherently competitive. Uh, On the other hand, you can see where someone who lived through the Great Depression and the Second World War might have a bleaker attitude about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was going to say that it, it seems fairly clear that if you even have, uh, you know, the same level of lack of education that I have with regards to uh, much of history and anthropology, that what makes society function is actually humans cooperating largely with one another and agreeing on sets of rules to play by. It doesn't mean that the games we play as a society or with one another aren't competitive or produce conflicts is that what we strive for is cooperation. So yeah, that, 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 that's a really good point And well taken that, that the state of man has to be cooperative. Otherwise we just wipe ourselves out for no good reason. Right. So this is, I think where we can, we can tie things together here where Heinlein seems actually to be mocking the liberal ideals that are at the core of United States political philosophy, right? And our, and our founding documents, as you, as you said, Brandon, the Dubois here in this lesson in, in class is really mocking them. Yet at the same time, Heinlein seems actually to value them, right? We can make read actually values those things. And I think that the connection there is that Heinlein really is a Hobbesian, that he believes that that is the the natural state of humans, but not the best state of humans. And that, in fact, civilization and then also the state is the thing that make that allows us to be or to live up, maybe, let's say, to our potential, right, to be the best people that we can be. And that, in fact, entrusting that work to people who have been in the military, people who have struggled and who have uh, gone through hardship and have done that. as an act of self-sacrifice, as an act of service for others, right? That those are the people that we want operating the machinery that protects us from ourselves and maintains peace and order and prevents us actually from giving into our 
natural flaws. That, that to me, seems to be at the root of Heinlein's conception here. Well, I think that's a pretty good way to make everything fit together. And it's going to put us in a good position to pick up with Heinlein's militarism and his moral philosophy in the next episode. Yeah. And we'll also use that episode to take a look at the criminal justice system in this uh, utopian future that Heinlein has invented and also Heinlein's ideal economics, which we have alluded to a few times already on this episode. We'll give them their real due next time. And so, yeah, I think this is a pretty good place to close out this episode. So, Brandon, let me say thank you for joining me on this, uh, this whole bonus series that we're doing on this book. Well, it's my pleasure. And I'm excited for, for what we have left to talk about. All right. Well, I am Glenn McDorman. And as always, you can find me and all our other shows at claytemplemedia.com, including the two that I host with Brandon, which are Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast, and also the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. And again, a huge thanks to the Patreon supporter who commissioned this whole series of episodes. This has been one of the real highlights of ATOS for me. And if you are interested in commissioning a bonus episode of your own, you can contact us there on Patreon or any of our social media accounts, or you can email us at claytemplemedia at gmail.com. So yeah, we'll be back with our final episode on this book in just uh, just about two days. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.